0: Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Meisel. I'm here at campaign headquarters. The Andrew Yang 2020
1: campaign. Hey, Mayor, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Things feel very calm here. Well, it's just because we're doing work over here and like the, the team has a ritual where when there's an interview on because of acoustics, <laughs> it like calms down. Even so though, I feel like, I think, I think a lot of people probably don't have any sense
0: of, unless they've been involved in a political campaign of some sort, I think they don't really have any sense of what happens behind the scenes and what's really involved.
1: Yeah, uh, um, you definitely have to be in it to understand, and it reminds me very much of a startup in many respects. Yeah, but the the wild thing is that it's a startup with like a defined target date. So when you see many of these campaign teams, they like run, 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 and then the date brick wall, and the whole thing disbands. It's kind of incredible. Uh, Not to say, I mean, we haven't experienced uh, the latter part since, but it's like a startup with an end date. Well, and. There's, there's sort of two end dates, I guess, really for you, right? Because one is getting the Democratic
0: nomination, and then the other one is the big one, right? So
1: Yeah, exactly. So the, some of the benchmarks uh, upcoming, are really the first primary votes get cast in January 2020. Uh, and the majority of presidential candidates will get washed out in, the, in January and February of 2020 when Iowa and New Hampshire vote. They'll probably wipe out 80 to 90% of the candidates. But how many are there right now? Right now, there are two of us, um, but by the time... There's only two? Only for a cut Yeah, a yeah. Right one? now, there are only two of us that have declared. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Um, but we know that number is going to surge to probably a record number. Yeah. Right? Um, 20 to 30. Um, and so of those 20 to 30, uh, let's call it like 15, are going to get wiped out by February of 2020.
0: Yeah, okay. And then in... <laughs> You know, in talking about this like a startup, too, how much are you taking into account competition
1: right? versus just like playing your own game kind of a thing? You know what's fun about our campaign in particular is that um, it's very much playing your own game, which is true of most of the good startups I've been a part of, Sure. where if you're constantly trying to keep tabs on a particular competitor and then trying to distinguish yourself from that competitor – I like growing from a low base myself in both business and in politics, it turns out, where your job is just getting the word out and conveying what you're doing uh, and then just growing, growing, growing. And only when you become really mature uh, do you start uh, distinguishing yourself against competition.
0: It's it a fair assessment, I'd say. And you know, One of the things that I always see when we're working with different companies at different levels is that regardless of the industry or the location or anything, at particular revenue points, people tend to deal with the exact same issues, you know. So, in my world, at least from like one to three hundred thousand, the focus is on sales, and three hundred to a million, the focus really needs to be on systems. So,
1: I would imagine that you see some similar issues in growth
0: as you get bigger and bigger. Yeah,
1: very much so. And uh, we're we're in the sales uh, stage ourselves, where the vast majority of people don't know who Andrew Yang is, or why I'm running for president, or why I should be president. Uh, and so there's a lot of getting the word out uh, and messaging. Well, let's let's see what we can do to help. So what? why are you running for president? Um, I'm running for president because I'm convinced that we're going through the greatest economic and technological transition in human history. And the reason why Donald Trump is our president today is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, the swing states he needed to win. And my friends in Silicon Valley know that we're about to do the same thing to millions of workers in retail, call centers and customer service, truck driving and transportation, which is the most common job in 29 states, fast food, and on and on through the economy, and that it's going to be disastrous for more and more Americans. And when I I started an organization called Venture for America that creates jobs around the country, we helped create about 3,000 jobs, and I realized we were pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom, and that... Uh, We need to think and act much, much bigger and faster as to how we're going to help America get through this transition. Uh, Not to um, be too dark about it, but I see even something as terrible and tragic as the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh as part of the same overarching narrative where as we blast away uh, middle-class livelihoods and paths to the future, then people become more prone to leaders like Donald Trump and uh, hatefulness. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's a, a completely valid connection.
0: So you, but you don't really see automation as a bad thing, obviously.
1: Well, I think automation is driving um, an historic need for adjustment and that yeah. right now uh, we're leaving it to people individually to figure out that adjustment and it's not going well at all. And uh, and so I would be very much pro-automation if we were broadly distributing the value gain such that everyone had cause to celebrate and be happy about it. But instead, again, if you look at truck drivers, if there are three and a half million 49 year old men who drive trucks for a living right now, uh, and then you say, Hey guys, great news. The trucks are going to start driving themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to go from making $46,000 a year to zero, 10,000. You know, it's like their the next alternative is going to be very, very, uh, dramatically inferior to, to their current job. And so uh, if you look at them and say, well, automation is a good thing, progress, you know, I mean, <laughs> like, the, like that's uh, just uh, so abstract. So I'm very pro-progress. I'm a serial entrepreneur. But I think we need to start getting real about what we need to do to help more people share in the value gains and have reason to celebrate.
0: So so my main feeling about automation and and Replacement of humans in certain jobs is that if it can be automated, then to some extent, it's not necessarily something that a human being really could fully engage with, uh, because if it obviously they had a job, they're doing what they needed to do. But at some point, if the computer can do it, then is that a truly fulfilling job for a human being? And there must be, and maybe it's idealistic, but there must be some better utilization of that resource.
1: Well, That's the ideal, man. It's just the market does not agree with you, or you right. know. I mean, so uh, there's a quote in my book about how if you were to make a video game um, the same as uh, the cashier's job, you'd think this is the shittiest video game ever made. That's, like, punishing. Um, But then if you make it a job, everyone's like, oh, it's, like, dignified and and important. And obviously we're going to automate away millions of cashier jobs. I mean, 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years. And so I would agree with you that if you can automate it, we should automate it and we should celebrate that. Um, particularly because right now the vast majority of Americans are not doing jobs that they're particularly pumped about. Yeah. By, that, the, by the numbers. Yeah, and so that's something that, that I always think
0: of is there must and again, I know it's idealistic, there must be something better for that person to do. So then, so what do you suggest then systemically to help that truck driver that gets displaced by the Uber truck?
1: Yeah, by the Uber truck. <laughs> so it's which is in like just a few years away. Uh, so the big moves we have to make, the reason I'm running for president, is that we need to start thinking much bigger uh, and more dramatically about how we're going to redefine work and value in this society. So the first big step is a freedom dividend, which is what I've rebranded universal basic income because nice. Americans really like the word freedom. Uh, they test much better, we tested uh-huh. a bunch of things. And they so, don't like socialism, so. Yeah, well, what's interesting <laughs> is it, it, it sort of bifurcated along the, um, uh, political lines where if you're progressive, you like it no matter what we call it. Um, but if you're conservative, you hate it unless it has the word freedom in it. So being very practical, we said, well, you know, freedom dividends yeah. seems very popular. So every American gets $1,000 a month free and clear starting at age 18 um, onward to 64 and then Social Security kicks in. And if you think about what $1,000 a month would do in a country where 57% of Americans can't afford to pay an unexpected $500 bill, It's really dramatic where it would improve mental health, physical health, stress levels, graduation rates, nutrition. It would bring down domestic violence, hospital visits, uh, anxiety and depression. Uh, It wouldn't obviously fix all those things, but it would make it significantly better. And it would also alleviate some of the economic and social tensions that are leading to uh, hatred and disunity and strife. I mean, it's the single biggest change between a mindset of scarcity, which is what most of America labors under right now, and replace it with a sense of abundance. Uh, So that would go a long way to help that displaced truck driver. But we have to think bigger still, um, which is if you look at the things, and this is to your point about, hey, like wouldn't it be great if Americans or humans could do jobs that could not be automated so, if you think about the things that the market right now will either underreward or fails to recognize, and you're a parent, you've got how many kids? Four. Yeah, yeah, I know you're an overachiever. <laughs> so I've, I've got, so I got two young boys. So, but you know that there, the things that the market will ignore, or undervalue include things like parenting and caregiving, uh, arts and creativity, journalism, increasingly, uh, environmental sustainability, public goods. Uh, volunteering in, in a community, involvement with a religious organization um, or otherwise. So the market will essentially say, hey, these things don't have any value. Yeah. But we know we need much more of them. And certainly that former truck driver needs more of these types of things um, in order to be connected and have a sense of purpose, instruction, fulfillment. So the goal would be to try and create a new economy around some of the measurements that we should be using to measure our own well-being. Because right now GDP is the shittiest measurement ever for our well-being. This GDP is just going to keep going up. And even the inventor of GDP, Simon Kuznets, said this should never be used as a national measurement of well-being, which is now what we use it for. Uh, and so if you can imagine where we redefine economic well-being to, thing, to be things like how our kids are doing, how much we like our work, uh, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, how uh, our elderly are faring, and... Um, levels of criminality and recidivism, and then reorient our economy towards things that would end up uh, creating many more human forms of work. Um, We essentially have to refashion a marketplace that rewards work that only we can do. It's very ambitious, but it's 2018. We invented GDP in 1930. I mean, we, we can't just ride GDP off a cliff, which is what we're doing right now, 88 years later, Uh, And so we start with a freedom dividend, but then we start measuring what matters and redefine economic success along those lines and then start rewarding those behaviors. But we have to move very fast because even now uh, labor force participation is down to 62.9 percent, the same levels as as, uh, Dominican Republic and El Salvador right now in the U.S. Year 10 of an expansion and almost one in five prime working age men between the ages of 21 and 30 has not worked in the last 12 months. Uh, and again, that's here in the U.S. right now, you're of an expansion. So we need to start uh, thinking and acting much, much bigger to try and redefine work in ways that will enable us to keep pace with uh, robots, AI, and technology. And
0: speaking about being idealistic, right, so you, you think, though, that you believe that if, if you give somebody in a bad situation $1,000 a month that they're going to spend it on the
1: right things. Well, most Americans are going to spend it on day-to-day expenses at this point. Like if you look at the numbers, most of them are going to spend it on paying down their debt or uh, car repairs or um, putting food on the table for their kids. I mean, right now, Americans are working often two or three gig or temp jobs to make ends meet. 94% of the new jobs created since 2005 have been temporary gig or contract mm-hmm. jobs that don't have benefits, particularly health care. So if you put $1,000 in their hands, for the most part, it'll just help people survive and get by. Um, but on the high end, you would end up providing a catalyst to entrepreneurship and creativity um, by enabling people to pursue interests that have been inside them the whole time. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, there's
0: clearly, and I, I'm as, as two people who live in New York, I, we have, a, I think, a sense of just how expensive it is to live in New York and how it's not as expensive to live almost anywhere other than New York. But there's certainly, I know that there's certainly people who could completely survive on a thousand dollars a month and not have to work a minute in the month to make that work for them as an individual.
1: Well, there's certain parts of the country where thousand yeah. dollars goes much, much further. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but even in those parts of the country, uh, I mean, uh, the poverty line in the U.S. is twelve thousand seven hundred seventy dollars, and so you're still below the poverty line if all you're getting is a thousand bucks. Um, but, yeah, there, there are people who could get by, particularly if you had some communal living situations. And it's one of the things I think that um, universal basic income would help bring about is that if you have six people get together and, get, and say, hey, guys, 6000 a month. Like, you know, we could like clean up that house and you know, <laughs> have, like like uh, whip it into shape and like, you know, start gardening and like do a bunch of things. And, um, and that's where we ought to be heading, frankly.
0: Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, on the one hand, I, I, I obviously, to me, it feels like a um, like a CSA in a farm. You know, your every share that goes into it is covering the basic operating expenses of that farm to be able to do what they do, and then anything beyond that, they can sell and make a profit. So it just makes life a lot easier, right? But so I'm also thinking though about that person who has been incarcerated and they're out, and maybe they're in an area where drug dealing and drugs are really common and crime is really common. So what's to stop? I mean, there isn't anything, I guess, to stop them from spending that money on drugs or on other nefarious activities.
1: Well, you look at the data, and I tend to be very data-driven. There there hasn't been an increase in spending on bad things wherever people have gotten this money. Um, So that's very encouraging. Um, And right now, people are coming out of jail with nothing. And then, what are the odds of that person then lapsing into bad habits? Or, you know, it's going to be hard to find a job. Um, because you're an ex-con, and then you know you get into drugs and, and bad things right now without the money. Whereas if you have the money, you can at least say, "Okay, like I'm not going to starve." You know, I have some value to society. People kind of like having me around. Like I'm not. <laughs> it's something. It's a reason to stay out of jail too. Because when right. you go to jail, you know you don't get the freedom dividend. And if you wind up running uh, afoul of the criminal justice system due to drug use or something like that then you also don't get the money because the money ends up going to treatment for, for drugs. So they're, they're actually like more powerful incentives to avoid bad behaviors. Um, certainly now, if you come out of jail with nothing, uh, you know, expecting you to keep your head up and your nose clean like, seems harder. Especially with so many companies that won't hire ex-cons as it is. Uh, so how will we fund this? Well, the, the big change we need to make is we need to start harnessing the gains from artificial intelligence and advanced technologies because the big winners in this era are going to be the trillion-dollar tech companies who uh, will benefit the most. And so, why? Why is that? Well, so if you think about the um, benefits of AI and self-driving cars and trucks, the leaders in that field are companies like um, Google slash Alphabet slash Waymo and Uber and Amazon. And so, those companies are great at not paying a whole lot of tax. Um, Right. The Amazon move is didn't make any money this quarter, no taxes. The Alphabet move is it all went through Ireland, like no taxes here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so the the trap for the U.S. is that these companies are going to soak up more and more work and value. And the public's not going to see much of a gain, even as the needs get higher. And so we need to join every other industrialized country in the world and have a value added tax, which would then give the public a tiny slice of every... Amazon Sale and Google Search. And because our economy is now so vast at 19 trillion dollars, up four trillion in the last 10 years, even a relatively moderate value-added tax, uh, half the European level, would generate almost a trillion dollars in revenue here in the U.S. So that plus existing welfare spending of about 800 billion a year plus all of the value gains from the fact that you'd grow the consumer economy by 12%, and then you'd end up getting back about a quarter of that new economic growth in tax revenue, plus the cost savings from things like healthcare, incarceration, and homelessness services, and the fact that you'd have a healthier, better educated, less stressed out, more productive population, Um, all of that would pay for a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month. Uh, we, We have the resources. We just right now are thinking too small. Uh,
0: why a 1,000, by the way? Because I know 12,700 properties have to do with that? Uh, yeah,
1: so it pushes you right below the poverty line, but it's not enough so that you're going to quit your job in most situations unless um, you really want to or your job's exploitative in some way. Um, it's based on a plan that was studied by the Roosevelt Institute and was proposed by, among other people, Andy Stern, the former head of the SEIU. Um, and so it's someone else's plan that I have... Appropriated, uh, but it's been studied, and, and I, I looked at it as something that would have a really dramatic impact on the lives of tens of millions of Americans, but uh, is not enough to distort the labor market. And obviously, wanting to do this
0: is one thing; actually making it happen is another. And it, it feels like, in some ways, this could be trying to steer a cruise ship with an oar, you know, to to make this change because there's. Besides the legal aspects and political aspects, there's there's the mindset of people to understand the shift.
1: Yeah, so a neuroscientist in Seattle said to me that the enemy of universal basic income is the human mind, because we've been programmed for resource scarcity, particularly where money is concerned. Um, And uh, that is the change we have to make. But I have to say, now that I'm running for president, I see what the path forward entails, and it's doable. Like, we, you know, we don't, you don't need a constitutional amendment to pass universal basic income. You just need a congressional majority. It passed the House of Representatives in 1971 under Richard Nixon. Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman was for it. A thousand economists signed a letter saying this would be great for the economy and society. And the reason it didn't become law was that Senate uh, Senate Democrats wanted a higher income threshold than was being offered. And that income threshold... Um, was about $30,000 for, for a family of four. I mean, it was significant, but the Democrats wanted more, and then the moment passed. Uh, but then one state passed something just like universal basic income in, in 1982, where now if you live in Alaska, you get between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked, from a petroleum dividend. And so when I go to Iowa and New Hampshire, I say, hey, guys, Alaska's doing this with the oil money. What is the oil of the 21st century? And then many of them respond correctly. It's technology, it's data, it's AI, it's the rest of it. So in Alaska, Alaska is a deep red conservative state, and that petroleum dividend is now wildly popular. Uh, Libertarians and conservatives love it because it's about autonomy and decision-making, and it's created thousands of jobs, it's improved children's health, it's reduced income inequality, and it's so popular that no politician can touch it. So there are precedents here in America. You do not need uh, a supermajority. You just need 51% of Americans to stand up and say, I'm an owner and citizen of the richest, most advanced society in the history of the world, and I can vote myself a dividend. So then those people, for example, the truck driver who loses his
0: job automation and now is getting $1,000 a month, what do, you, what do you think happens to that person?
1: Well, so the, the goal is that, you know, none of this happens like, uh, immediately in the sense that, right now, if you start getting $1,000 a month, you can still drive your truck until that job dries up in like three or four years. So then when that job dries up, then you're like, okay, I've got a bit of a nest egg. I go home. I'm not going to die. I'm getting the freedom dividend. And in an ideal world, that worker then finds something else to do in their community, something like become a mechanic, uh, become like an air conditioning repair person, or like does something that there's still a need for. And there is a massive need for uh, middle skill labor in this country. I mean, there are 15 million unfilled job openings around Line repair and high end manufacturing and a bunch of other things that we just don't have people trained to do. Um, Not to say, and this is one thing that that infuriates me, if you look at the success of government funded retraining programs in the US, um, there's essentially no value in government funded retraining programs where the fail rate is um, more than 80% and that it's just a waste of money most of the time. So there are a lot of politicians who walk around saying, we're going to retrain, we're going to retrain. Um, we're not going to retrain millions of Americans to do some new wonder job, and that is true for the vast majority of truckers too. I mean, we're talking about forty-nine-year-old men who've been driving trucks for years. There's no reason to think that um, they're all of a sudden going to become coders or something ridiculous. Uh, and, and so, Shopify experts, yes. So for many of these truckers, when, when they go back, um, it's it's going to be a very very tough transition. And if you look at it right now, if you look at the displaced manufacturing workers in the Midwest, about half of them left the workforce and never worked again. Um, And then many of them started drinking themselves to death and killing themselves, um, where now eight Americans die of opiates every hour, uh, and suicide rates have spiked to a point where now life expectancy is declining in this country overall. Uh, I mean, it's getting that dark. So it is not to say that that trucker is going to just go home and, you know, be... I mean, by the numbers, he's likely to um, start drinking and and do some bad things. Um, But in an ideal world, he goes home and is like, okay, I've got a nest egg. Let me see what else there is to be done. And then because everyone in his community is getting $1,000 a month, uh, and we're in the midst of trying to create more touch points in in the economy for people to be able to do good things that are not a 9 to 5. Like, let's say that trucker then looks up and says, okay, like I can now – Um, do this thing to help my neighbor and get uh, various credit for that. I can volunteer at this like local uh, youth center or little league or coaching. And then maybe I get some credit for that. Now I can give people a ride and get some credit for that and then start trying to build a more robust economy around things we need more of in society. That's the ideal world. And that's the Herculean challenge we have to undertake. The thing that frustrates me is people look at it and be like, oh, well, what are you going to do? Um, I mean, if we do nothing, that trucker is going to go home and kill himself and then eventually start, um, you know, some of them are going to revolt because 350,000 of them own their own trucks. And so, and 80,000 of them are ex-military. So if you think these yeah. people are just going to go home and be like, oh, well, like, you know, like, that's that. I mean, the odds are much higher that they're going to band together, say, fuck this, like, know, say, hey, guys, let's go protest, block a bunch of highways with their trucks uh, and, you know, have at it. I mean, that that's a much more likely scenario in the next five to ten years. I want to say also only 13% of these truckers are unionized so that there's not much of a collective bargaining resolution to be had.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting for, I mean, for a number of reasons, but one of which is it almost feels like you're trying to take a group of people who are not risk takers and turn them into risk takers by removing the risk.
1: Well, um, right now, business formations at multi-decade lows across the country. People are moving across state lines at record lows. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to try and supercharge dynamism in this country. And you and I are serial entrepreneurs. Uh, we know that most entrepreneurs um, have a mindset of abundance and possibility and optimism, which is the the opposite of what most Americans are experiencing out there. So, can you increase a mindset of abundance and optimism if you put a thousand bucks a month into people's hands? Hell yes. You know, it's like, uh, like there's so many people who would be like, Oh wow. Like now that this thousand bucks is coming in, like maybe I can start that business I was thinking about doing, or um, in many cases, maybe I can pursue a creative endeavor that, that I've had in mind. I mean, uh, yeah, like de-risking it. Cause a lot of the entrepreneurs I know um, came from really strong families and so the, the truth is in the background, they knew if they failed, they could always go home and lick their wounds. Um, they could go, go get another job. They're educated and strong. Um, we have to put more Americans into that sort of uh, mindset. Yeah, that's, that's a tall order in some ways. So shifting a little bit,
0: you know, we've, we've been a country for a couple hundred years and we've had a, a large diversity of leadership diverse in the fact that they've always been relatively wealthy white men. So that's got to be something as an Asian American, right? You have to be considering that that this is uh, pioneering in a lot of ways. And maybe the country wasn't ready for Hillary. Maybe there are a lot of different reasons for that. But this would obviously be like a first. And it's probably something, it must be an elephant in some of the rooms that you're talking.
1: You know, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, um, (laughs) one... Applause line um, I use is that the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I, I am in some ways like the opposite extreme where sure. like I'm very, very uh, into the data and into trying to solve the root causes. The root causes to me for Donald Trump are the fact that we blasted away millions of manufacturing jobs and retail jobs and we're going to keep on ripping through the economy in this way. Uh, and it's going to spur tons of hatred and violence and xenophobia and racism and misogyny and, and the rest of it. So we need to think and act much, much uh, bigger and more boldly about what the um, the future can be. And my Asian-ness, you know, uh, I think it's been a plus truly because um, people think I know what I'm talking about when I talk about technology and, and business and the economy. You know, it's like, like, oh, this guy is like a smart Asian guy. He, he, must know what he's talking about. Um, and that, that I haven't experienced any, like, racial animus or hostility. I mean, I am talking to Democrats in Iowa, New Hampshire, and, like, people, are, I think, are very open. Um, but there, there is a really tough transition ahead for this country where, and I was speaking to a group of Asian Americans over the weekend where I said that I think Asian Americans have a particular role to play because this country is transitioning towards becoming majority-minority in 2045 or so. Hmm. Um, And there's a very limited history of dominant um, uh, economic or political ethnic groups voluntarily sharing or relinquishing power. It's not like a normal thing to happen. And so this period is going to be very, very tough. And I think Asian-Americans have a particular role to play where, and this is another Asian joke but like a friend of mine said, like America needs an Asian American president because it will irritate everybody a little bit but it won't make anyone too upset Uh, and so my goal is to be the guy who comes in and cleans up some of the messes the really deep systemic messes um, that are causing problems in this country uh, and then get out of the way afterwards Uh, so, so that's uh, I'm a very proud Asian American, but like it, it truly hasn't been like a major issue when I've been out there stumping. I, mean, I think that's an excellent approach to it.
0: I I don't know if you've seen the the Sacha Baron Cohen show, "Who Is America?" at all. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, there's that, there's yeah. still some very very backwards people in this country.
1: Yeah, and the, the great thing about running for president the uh, way I am as a Democrat is that I just need to win over uh, forty forty or fifty thousand. Iowa Democrats, uh, you know, it's like, I don't need to win over every uh, single American or conservative or someone who looks at me and is like, oh, like, you know, like, um, you know, unAmerican" american or something along those lines. Well, uh, I mean, in every
0: single election, right? Half the country loves the president, half the country hates the president. So, yeah, I
1: mean, and, and that's one of the problems we have to um, work to overcome. It's going to be, I mean, there, there's no silver bullet, but I, I do think that um, the opposite of scarcity is abundance. And that's where we have to head.
0: Yeah, and honestly, I don't think a lot of people, at least in the political sphere, talk about that. Um, you see that in, in our circles a lot, in, entre- in
1: entrepreneur circles, but you I, you never hear that word come up. Yeah, and, and this false sense of scarcity is going to kill us. And I have to say, Republicans have really won this argument so big time against Democrats. Where Republicans are like, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? And Democrats are like, uh, here's how we're going to pay for it. Here's how we're going to pay for it. <laughs> and then when Republicans are in charge, they're like, you know, $1.5 trillion tax cut. Like, like, they don't care about how to pay for the thing. And the Democrats are still like, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, you know, we have to be like, you know what? We're the owners of this country. If we invest in ourselves, we're going to get back many, many times the returns, which we will. Just like a good company says we're going to invest in our people. As a society, we have to look at ourselves and say we are the biggest assets and ownership class of this country. And if we invest in ourselves, we win. Uh, And and that's the there are plenty of resources to go around. We are the richest and most advanced country in the history of the world. Uh, We also have the global reserve currency and, you know, a lot of flexibility that we have to make use of while we still are integrated as a society. We don't have limitless time to get this done.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, there's still large untapped resources in this country as well.
1: I mean, you and I hang out. I mean, there's so many untapped resources. I mean, you and I out on both sides where it's like you see that there are some people who are doing phenomenally well that if they were to take a haircut they would barely notice and then on the flip side we know that there are all these people that could be contributing in various ways that never haven't have a shot at all i mean there are inefficiencies on both sides oh completely how as as you're growing the campaign
0: now and growing what you're doing what's Sort of the big challenge for you right now. I'm not talking politically, like really logistically, business-wise, as a startup. You know, what's the big challenge for you in the in the campaign?
1: Well, it's it's it is really fun um, most all the time, uh, and it feels very familiar. Right, but right right now the challenge is like I, I compare myself to like an indie band that you know people when they discover they're like, oh yeah, that Andrew Yang guy. He's <laughs> got like some great. You like Yang? Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he's got some, some great tracks. Um, and, you know, we can't win as like the indie band that people love, but not enough people have heard of. Um, and so when you talk about like the major operational logistical challenge, it is how to get our ideas out to the broadest audience possible, uh, fast enough. I mean, in a way it's funny. It's like, because it's like a startup with an end date, like, you know, you don't have them, like you can't, um plan around your own calendar. You have to try and <laughs> make it happen. Um, and so the, the challenge is really growing big enough, fast enough. Um, and uh, without setting your hair on fire, or doing something dumb, you know, like they're like, it's, it's interesting that um, we live in such a sensationalist time too, where uh, I mean, our president's a narcissist reality star who just had like a bigger public image than others. I mean, one of my real fears and concerns is that Democrats lose this next election. Um, you know, and if you look at the, the figures who are the front runners, I mean, it's plausible that Trump wins again. And Trump said something that we then quoted because Trump said, like, he's dying to run against all these people. And his one fear is that some newcomer comes out of nowhere that no one's ever heard of uh, and runs against him. Um, and so our challenge is being that newcomer that grows big enough, fast enough to be able to beat him in 2020. It's a fun, it's a fun puzzle. It is a fun challenge and puzzle. So like we grow every day, um, but then you always ask yourself, like, is that um, big enough, fast enough? Uh, and so you have to be a disciplined operator and, and, you know, believe in the message and what you're doing um, while also keeping your eyes on the prize so last question is, what are your top three pieces
0: of advice for people to be more effective?
1: I, well, th- this may, might be controversial, but number one is to not listen too much to um, what's going on out there. Like there's some people who are like, oh, you got to like stay informed and like read every last blog. Um, I'm certainly not that kind of operator. It's like you have to pay most the most attention to what you're doing and your team and trust uh, that you're going to. Um, find your tribe and um, find a following so number one is focus on yourself first and don't get too caught up on whether or not quote unquote you're doing the right things or you're at the right conference with like the right people I mean a lot of the times when you go to these conferences uh, they're terrible (laughs) you know it's like uh, so number one is just focus on your own stuff Um, that'll help make you more effective um, in my opinion um, number two is to work with people that you really enjoy working with, and that if you have um, an opportunity to be able to build fashion your own team, just like because, like, when people enjoy what they're, their, who they're working with, everyone is more effective and you end up with a stronger culture. And, uh, and then number three is to write, um, and that's like to write stuff for yourself um, because I look back on stuff I wrote a while ago and like get tons of value. It's like a window into like a different. Um, point in time Um, and then sometimes you write something it's like oh i should send that as an email to the team or like oh now they're running for president it's like oh i should like make that into an op-ed or whatnot where there's something magical about writing um, in terms of organizing your thinking Uh, so those would be my three um, pieces of advice those are excellent so where can people find out more and support
0: your race to the top
1: Yeah, if you have an interest in building a new economy that uh, revolves around human beings, go to yang2020.com, or you can just Google my name, Andrew Yang. At this point, I've dominated every other Andrew Yang on the Internet. Uh, But we need your help uh, to build this campaign in this case as big and fast as we can, because humans are going to lose over time unless we define uh, the race into something that we can win. And so again, we invented GDP almost 100 years ago. We can invent new measurements and start measuring what matters. And everyone who's listening to this is a business person knows that when you start measuring something, you get more of it. So we need to measure the things that we need more of and then push our economy in that direction.
0: Thanks for listening to the Less Doing Podcast. At Less Doing, we help entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to set up systems and processes that empower a team to ultimately make themselves more replaceable. That way they can optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their businesses in order to be more effective. If you want to find out more about Less Doing, the podcast, the blog, the books, and all of the wonderful programs we offer to help you get from where you are to where you know you want to be, go to lessdoing.com slash podcast and check out our OAO blueprint so you can get started today.